Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by M&M's Hazelnut. Watching a movie TV show is nothing without a bag of your favorite treats. Take your treats to the next level with the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies. They are a delicious combo of hazelnut spread and milk chocolate in every bite-sized piece, delivering a side of indulgence that's all its own. Go hazelnutty and try the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies today. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, your friendly neighborhood web slinger, except only for Uh-oh. a 50-50 profit split. Drop that bag. It's Let's Jason go. Jason Concepcion. All right. So the Jason Marathon on The Watch continues. Woo! Obviously, we got a lot of stuff going on right now. You can check out our after show for Succession. It's called Number One Boys. You can find that on YouTube. You can find that in all the usual spots. We've been running the audio for Number One Boys on the watch feed, so as you watch Succession, you can always hear our long recap of the episode of Succession on the watch. Jason and I also have been breaking down Mindhunter Season 2, so in Monday's show, we did episodes 1 through 5. You can watch a video version of that breakdown on YouTube. That's under the Flat Circle banner. That's sort of our our true crime crime show thing that we're doing. And you can check that out. And today we are talking about the second half of Mindhunter Season 2, Episodes 6 through 9. But before we got into that, I wanted to talk a little bit yeah. about the Spider-Man stuff that came up this week. So obviously, <laughs> Sean and Wesley and Amanda had a great conversation on Spider-Man yep. in its relation to a larger existential crisis about the state of the movies. And that's a really awesome talk that people should check out. I wanted to ask you sort of more practically about this story as a a fan service story. Yeah. And also as as it relates to like Marvel going forward. So basically like the broad strokes of the story. Tell yes. me what you you understand about it. The broad strokes of the story are this really kind of groundbreaking agreement that was hashed out um, rather quickly between Sony and Marvel, Amy Pascal and Feige is the point people Kevin in that. Feige, yeah, he runs Marvel, yeah. To share Spider-Man essentially like Marvel would rent him, has now come to an end. The products of that were two standalone Spider-Man movies, uh, Homecoming and Far From Home, Mm -hmm. both really fun. And then various appearances by Spider-Man in the MCU, Civil War, uh, uh, Infinity War, and Endgame. Yeah. And in those movies, seemingly being groomed, to be the next figurehead of the MCU. Right. You're right. the next Tony Stark. He gets the sunglasses. Uh, he gets Tony's sunglasses, which give him, uh, you know, uh, access to Tony's vast weapons array, Six tech bit, array. His BitTorrent library. <laughs> his incredible BitTorrent library of dark web shit, <laughs> like terabytes of information on people and, you know, potentially like trillions of dollars worth of assets and and, and money. Um, and where we left it at the end of Far From Home was uh, Peter's secret identity released to the world. Yeah. Um, and now that's over. Marvel wanted, as you noted, a 50-50 split. Sony was like, hold on a second. We've got your most most uh, popular character. And both Captain America and Tony Stark are out of the picture. Yeah. So 
the feeling, I guess, uh, we're from not Sony's perspective, the number one would, draft pick, right, right? Would be like we have some leverage. Right. Um, we're not giving you a 50-50 split, right? Like it. I, this is a very like. I don't know if this is a completely accurate way of looking at it, but this is sort of like what if the the, the Lakers were like let's split Zion Williamson this right, year. Right. I mean, it, it is kind of like you're talking about a draft pick of that caliber, of that kind of value yeah. in a world in the same way. Disney was like, it's not really worth it to us to do this for 5%. Right. If you want Kevin Feige's golden Midas touch, absolute, we got to split it 50-50. Yeah. And on the flip side, because it's competitive marketplace, Tom Rothman over at Sony is right. apparently like, I like my chances. Right. I like my chances doing the two more Spider-Man movies we have Holland under contract for right. and making him a part of the Spider-Man universe that we're trying to build at Sony that is Venom. You hated on Venom and now you love Venom. Everybody was shitting on Venom. Critically panned. And guess what? 800 million. Yeah. So Get at me. <laughs> they've got Venom 2 and they've got Jared Leto starring in Mobius. I don't even know what that is, but he's it's just a, vamp- a thing he's that they're making. freaking vampire. So, so there's based a, on Jared Leto's actual life. There's a couple of takeaways from here. One is that I think Sony wants Spider-Man movies at a faster clip than Disney is yes. prepared to make them. Now, when I say prepared, I don't mean like Disney can't make him. Right. I mean, Disney's like, there's a 10-year plan here. We've got like all these different things we got to launch. Our vision is for Tom Holland to pop up for five minutes yeah. at the end of Captain Marvel 2 or something and kind of be the connective tissue through these as Downey was in a lot of these Marvel right. movies. That's maybe our vision. This is not based on reporting. This is based on right. like my read of the story. And Sony's like, how about this? How about this dude gets back to work right now yeah. and we keep jamming out Spider-Man movies while this guy's still cute? I think Because it- that has always been <laughs> kind of the element over hanging over Spider-Man movies is it's a young man's he's a, game. He's a kid. And this guy's about to go make Nico Walker's novel Cherry with the Russo brothers, and that's where he gonna, plays an opioid addict veteran. That's going to age him twelve years. But it's going to it's going to take a little bit of bloom off the rose. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Like Tom Holland is not going to be your 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 younger sister's Tom Holland in two years. Rothman is like mailing Tom Holland a box of Paula's Choice skincare products yes. and being like. Son, you need to be moisturizing like under your eyes and the whole thing, washing your face three times a day. I don't want to see a wrinkle. He's showing him the Irishman trailer. He's like, we can do lots of stuff, (laughs) okay? No need for you to go lose weight (laughs) or gain weight or do whatever it is you're thinking about doing. Just like stay, stay, stay golden, pony boy. There's another aspect to this, which is uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller of Lego movies and various other things. Um, did Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the animated film, which was am- amazing, maybe my favorite movie of last year. And so they're thinking, hey, like, maybe we've got cutting-edge, like, uh, Feige clones of our own. We like our team. We like our team. Yeah. We like our squad. Yeah. And so that that's that's a very, very good point. Yeah. And I wonder whether or not the big takeaway from this is this collision between uh, these— Four or five corporations that yeah. own everything, calling all of the calling all the cows back, being yeah. like, "Hey, it's time to come back." You know, it's cool, you, friends. You were on Netflix for a while. Time to get on this service. Uh, you know, The Office. You were on Netflix right, for a while. Right. Why don't you come back? You're on the NBC Comcast Universal streaming service. Right. Spider Man. That's great. Glad Disney gets to like cash in and like ride out on like yeah. being like, look how we fixed Spider-Man. <laughs> Fuck that. Why don't you come back and stand around in Venom movies? Because yeah. no matter what, we feel like we're going to make our money. And that that idea of this consolidation of corporate yeah. assets, which is essentially like, I you know, 
as Sean and Amanda and Wesley talked about, yeah. saying this consolidation of corporate assets is a sad way to look at like movie it making is. and storytelling. That colliding with a lot of people just being like, I just want Spider-Man to be in these Marvel movies. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit who is it, say Sony on the check or right. Walt Disney on the check or what. And that's going to be like a real tension going forward. I agree. You know, you know it's interesting. It used to be about stars. Now it's about IP. And I do wonder, you know, I, I could see from Sony's perspective, they would think, okay, well, we've got our, we've got uh, Marvel's most popular character back in the fold. We like our team. And, you know, listen, how many people really pay attention to the inside baseball, Hollywood reporter, business side of the movies? To your, to your point, like, they just want to see Spider-Man in a movie. Yes. Um, and then from Marvel's perspective, you know, it's interesting to look at Spider-Man's appearances in the MCU um, through this lens and, th- and really try to game out, like, how, how Marvel was— possibly preparing for this yeah, moment. because this you, didn't happen yesterday. It didn't happen yesterday. This was always a possibility. And if you really look at it, um, Peter Parker's one point of contact in the in that Marvel, in the Marvel U, was Tony, Tony Stark. And Tony Stark is dead. Yeah. So theoretically, it wouldn't be that hard for them to just cut the cord. You know, like Nick Fury appears in, in Far From Home, spoiler, kind of. Yeah. And, but like he's on a spaceship the whole time. They never actually directly talk. So... It feels like Marvel has always kind of left themselves an out. Yeah, and there's like, so that's exactly right. There's a very vocal amount of people who are like, no way, boycott all Sony products. I'm going to light my PlayStation on fire because you guys took Spider-Man out of the MCU. Right. And then there's like, the rest of the world. The vast, that's like, yeah, the vast majority. Hey, did you of the see world. the Spider Man's going to be in Venom too? Right. Sick. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to go see that. <laughs> And that's like that's the that's the tension right now. Yeah. That's like what's going to happen going forward a lot. And I think that the more that people are just like, I think that when Warner Brothers was like, we have to have a unified theory, right. the Justice League, and and Batman is going to serve as the backbone of all this, and Superman is going to be in this, and there's going to be like a continuing plot line, and then they kind of screwed it up yeah. by like not knowing where what direction, and they made these movies way too dark and way yeah. too. Un, like unfunny, right? And then they accidentally had Suicide Squad, and people were still like a billion dollars worth of people and right. they were like, oh, so it doesn't matter. Right, it doesn't matter. Like, nobody really cares and if we just make this movie cool, right. like, all these people are going to go see it. They're still going to go see it. Right. And, look, I mean, like, there's plenty of other things in the world. I would love to spend nothing more than to spend all my time talking about Steven Soderbergh adapting a Deborah Eisenberg <laughs> screenplay. Like, that's that's definitely where my, like, passion is. Yeah. But I'm saying, like, this is a major deal because we're talking about the next 15 years of movies in some ways. And your point about like, I wonder how long this has been an issue. I wonder how long they were like, yeah, this is going to probably, when this contract lapses, I don't think Rothman's going to let us do this Mm -hmm. for Mm 50-50. And and they were like, let's protect ourselves. Let's make sure Marvel goes into space and into different timelines so that Spider-Man's absence is not like, hey, did you guys have to erase this guy out of the movie? And like, it's like Black Mirror or something. You know, like, I, I think your point is really valid. Uh, gosh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's Spider Man. You know, I, I, we, we could we could get into Deborah Eisenberg some other podcast. I love Deborah Eisenberg. Um, we'll talk about some of the other stuff happening in the TV by her world. short story collections. Uh, I know, seriously, she's really great. She's just incredible. Um, for Monday show, obviously Succession. We'll have a lot of other stuff. Thank you for listening. We're going to get into our breakdown of Mindhunter season two, episode six through nine, right now. 
Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Kroger Grocery Stores. Did you know that one in eight Americans struggle with hunger? Yet 40% of food produced in the United States gets thrown away, and a lot of that food waste happens at home. When food waste is sent to landfills, greenhouse gases are released, so it's a problem for our planet, too. But think about this. If we redirected just one-third of the food we waste to people in need, we would more than cover the unmet food needs across the country while helping to protect our planet. That's what Kroger is doing with their Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation. Last year alone, Kroger donated 325 million meals to local food banks. And they've got some great tips to help reduce food waste at home, too. It's all part of their goal to achieve zero hunger and zero waste by 2025. Check out Kroger.com slash ZHZW to learn more. That's Kroger.com slash ZHZW. All right, we are back. It's The Watch. I'm here with Jason Concepcion, and we are going to talk about the second half of the second season of Mindhunter now. What a normal show. Yeah, what a totally not sick, depraved show (laughs) that makes me feel super great about humanity. This is episodes six through nine. So on Monday, Jason and I covered one through five. You can also see that video on YouTube where we did it as the flat circle, our sort of true crime uh, endeavor our umbrella for all things disgusting in this planet. And so episodes six through nine of Mindhunter season two are largely concerned with the uh, pursuit of, the capturing of, and the the interrogation of the Atlanta child murderer, uh, Wayne Williams. But before we even get to that, I guess a little context about the Atlanta child murder. So uh, I think I would go into, I I would say I was aware, but not Mm -hmm. an expert on it. How, How aware of Atlanta child murders were you going into this? Pretty aware, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, people who who have looked at this case fall into three camps, basically. One is Wayne Williams is good for all of it. Mm-hmm. Two is Wayne Williams is good for some of it. And three is Wayne Williams didn't do any of it. Right. And he was eventually convicted of two of the 30 murders, I believe, that was eventually— Right. It was not all children, but a lot of children, 28 yeah. children, I believe, yes. and two two adults. That's correct. And police would probably say that they consider him good for, like, 20-some-odd of— the victims, but there's certain ones that don't seem to fit. Like there's, there were two girls who were killed. One of them was abducted from her home. One of them was like bound with duct tape. Both things are like MO uh, are, are details that are kind of like out of the ordinary Mm -hmm. for whoever the perpetrator is. We think Wayne Williams, on the other hand, like the killing stopped when Wayne went to jail. And this is also what Jason's sort of alluding to with the idea that what's the MO? Yeah. What is the profile here? That's kind of like one of the consuming themes of the second half of the season is whether or not real life is adhering to Holden's hypotheses about serial killers. The profile, the profile. It doesn't fit the profile. It doesn't fit the profile. They they bring in, and throughout episodes six through nine, just a little bit of background, like Mm -hmm. episodes six through nine are directed by um, Carl Franklin, who directed One False Move, who's directed a lot of television. He was on The Watch two weeks ago or a week ago now, and it has a different sort of feel, I think, to the first five episodes, mm-hmm. which are directed by David Fincher and Andrew Dominic. But it definitely is within the Mindhunter vocabulary, like visual vocabulary. Sure. So it doesn't feel like a different show. Although there are some different flourishes. And I think it's good that there are different flourishes mm-hmm. because the show really opens up. It's like, for the most part, Mindhunter is like a very like interior, dark, windowless room, yep. overhead light, 
two guys kind of going through files and asking questions. And the high points are an interrogation with an already caught serial killer about their history. Mm -hmm. The second half of the second season, though, is almost a crime show. Yeah, it is very much a procedural. And all of a sudden we're outside and outside in the daytime at times. Yes. And in a, in a painstakingly recreated 1988 Atlanta. Yeah. And uh, just to give you some idea about what was going on back then, you, you've got, you know, maybe not the mass media that we're accustomed to now, but there was definitely a lot of attention being paid to crimes like this because mm-hmm. there was, I mean, Jason and I talked about this a lot on the True Detective uh, episodes that we've done. This idea of stranger danger. This right. idea of it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your kids are? Just starting to bubble at this time. And yeah. Really the collision boiling. of Reagan's America and this idea of going back to white picket fences right. or this idea versus you can't lock your doors. You can't unlock your doors right. at night. You can't let your kids play outside because you don't know what's going to happen to them. You combine this with Atlanta changing. So earlier in the season, Ford arrives in Atlanta and Hartsfield's you know, becoming one of the biggest airports in the world. Right. And Atlanta's got a lot of investment coming in. And what does Atlanta want known about itself? How does it want to be perceived? Not serial killers. Yeah, not as a bastion for child murder, (laughs) obviously. And uh, in 1985, James Baldwin wrote a book called Evidence of Things Not Seen. It was a pieces that he was writing for Playboy about the Atlanta child murders. And he said, the state of Georgia had never before exhibited so intense an interest in black life or black death. Mm. And... Holden's interfacing with that yeah. phenomenon is kind of a, a major part of the second season. I think that the, in some ways the emotional kind of climax of the season is Holden running through this yes. this uh, vigil with a cross. Uh, and it's probably the most visually like kind of the, the most virtuosity of the of the season is, is lent to that where they switch footage stocks yep. and they shoot it almost – like uh, a 1960s like Zapruder film yeah, kind of like thing. it looks like all washed out and you see the film grain and the transitions. So let's just talk broadly about how you felt like, what, what did you think of the way that they moved through the Atlanta child murders as, in this last four episodes? I was, you know, I'm not, I was really surprised at how tightly they hewed to the actual case. Mm-hmm. Um, the way Williams was caught, the kind of cat and mouse back and forth, his real arrogance yeah. uh, in the way that he handled himself um, with the authorities. And then, uh, you know, the the denouement and him eventually going to jail. All that was ex- very historically accurate. Yeah. You know, uh, they caught him the exact same way. Uh, he was driving over a bridge. The Atlanta PD heard a splash and they pulled him over and questioned him. Uh, didn't hold him that night, but eventually uh, did manage to put him away. And all of that is is exactly what happened. And I think it it's really interesting to think, to kind of like zoom out and think about how this show might continue in further seasons. Yeah. Considering how tightly they have uh, maintained the details of this case. Yeah, there's and, no Hannibal Lecter moment. Yeah, they, there's, they, they don't they're crack not cha- him. Yeah. You know, and, and you, you know, I would highly recommend people who are interested in this, and Jason hit me to this. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has done a really good job collecting all of yeah. the work they've done on the Atlanta child murders over the years. And um, it's a it's a fascinating, like, sort of archive to go through both the pieces from the time, yeah. like from 1980, and then interviews with Williams 10 years after that. It continues to this day. The case continues to be looked through because certain victims, as as we said before, 
it's unclear whether he actually is responsible for those deaths. So yeah. that the investigation really continues. And the cases were closed, even yeah. though he was only convicted of two murders. And that's sort of the end of the season is Holden talking to the mothers and Stop and Camille Bell especially and yeah. talking about whether or not this gesture is right. justice. So it's like we got him. I feel really good about the guy we got in terms of like my certainty that he is responsible. Do we have a connection to, can, can I give you the closure necessary to know right. that this is what happened to your son? No, I cannot do that. Right. So that's, and it's it's the impossibility of of closure beyond justice. And and Jason and I spent so much time, we talked about this on Monday, about like the like sort of sign signifier idea of like yeah. a lot of law enforcement, a lot of justice things where it's like, you think that this is the end, but it doesn't, it's only the end in one arena of life. Yeah. It's not the end for the people who suffered these traumas. Yes. And, and and this show really reckons with that. It really does. Uh, and it reckons it with it um, in every strand of the plot. You know, Wendy's uh, love life, Tench's home life, all that stuff is feels like it's seeping into everything. And you're kind of forced to contend with the idea that um, is it possible that Wayne Williams and BTK are better at compartmentalizing their lives than these the investigators, normal yeah. people who yeah. are after them. Uh, and it's really an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, and, and this show brings up lots of ideas about forgiveness. Yeah. Obviously, in the second half of the season, the mother of the toddler that Brian is a party to the death of, yeah. if that sentence makes sense, comes to Nancy and is like, I've come here to forgive you because yeah. I can't, I, I think that I've been looking to, to God for an answer right. and I've finally arrived at forgiveness is what I need to give you. And that in itself almost sets off a repulsion in Nancy yeah. at her son who's adopted and maybe the most searing part of like the entire series yeah. so far is Nancy looking, you know, talking to Tench and saying like, every day I wake up and look in the mirror and I know he didn't come from my body and I'm thankful for that. I was just like, you're just like, okay, I got to go walk into the ocean now. It's it's unbelievable. And then her, you know, eventually what she comes to is just escape this. Yeah. None of this happened. We're not going to talk to uh, child services anymore. We're just leaving. We're moving. We're moving. Yeah. And uh, whatever that means for the marriage is whatever it means. We're out. Yeah. And, you know, with Nancy and Tench, I thought it was interesting too because um, Mindhunter doesn't go over the top. And you and I, I like to draw the connections of – if something is set during this time, let's right. play it out. Like what would have been in the air culturally yeah. at that time? And, you know, Mindhunter does like a nice job here and here and there with like a KKK member being like, I, I think the Braves are terrible. Right. And Bobby <laughs> yeah. Cox should be fired. Yeah. But at that time period, 1980, like you're not too many years removed from like the omen. Yeah. You're only a few more idea. years removed away from the exorcist. This idea of like children somehow being vessels of evil was definitely like a thing. I, I don't know. It's not explicit, but I am sure The Exorcist and The Omen are two movies that like David Fincher is high key aware of. And you know, the late 60s and 70s was really like a boom time for child psychology, Dr. Yeah. Spock, like all that stuff was just coming into the popular culture. And you add on to that the fact that Tench is like on the cutting edge of developing these tools to identify behaviors that could signify truly troubled people. And now he has to grapple with the fact that like his alarm bells are going off yeah. when he's looking at his son. Yeah. And what is, and 
he's hoping that these tools like aren't as good as he thinks they are. You the, know, the shot of when Brian's coming out of the school, yeah, and he's just and like all the kids have kind of parted like yeah. the Red Sea, and and he's just got that look on his face, and then you can just see Tench's face darken yeah. as he realizes like there's something wrong with him. Yeah, it's pretty chilling. Let's talk a little bit about like, one of the things I thought was really interesting about the way that they construct these episodes is in a lot of procedurals, especially if you've watched a bunch of them, yeah. you wind up kind of being like, I know the ropes. Right, right. Like, I kind of know, here's the episode of Law & Order. Uh, it, there's going to be a guy who looks nailed on as the killer, and uh, but obviously, <laughs> it's just he's not. His alibi sticks, or right. you know, he dies before yeah. they, you know, like something happens. Um, you, like you said before, they're obviously adhering to history with Mindhunter. Right. But I thought that each of the people that they bring in for questioning, the plumber yeah. and the KKK member before they get to Wayne, even much to Holden's chagrin because he's just insistent that there's yeah, no profile. way that the killer would have crossed racial lines um, and that there's no way a white killer could go undetected in Atlanta, even though Jim eventually is like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, you don't, like, you're not Atlanta, from here. You're Atlanta not from is here. not yeah. Baltimore. Yeah. Atlanta is different. There, yeah. It's more mixed. It's yeah. more, it's, there's more intermingling. But I thought each of those guys who they bring in serves as like a really, like almost like a, a census of right. the South at the time. Like the plumber who's just kind of like, I'm just trying to keep my head down. Right, right. I'm just trying to do my thing. I don't really care who I work for. Right, right. I, I know that uh, the KKK exists, but I was raised differently. Yeah. You know, like, I don't Not know to hate anybody. Idea. And then the KKK guy is like, I'm for sure a racist piece of garbage. Right. And also there are a lot like me and probably in positions of power. Right. And guess what? You're never putting me away. Right. But it's like, but I didn't kill this kid. But I didn't kill him. Yeah. yeah. And then when they finally come across Wayne on the bridge that night, the thing that Wayne has, that Kemper had, that a lot of these guys have, is it does adhere to Holden's ideas about these killers and that there is a fascination with um, the investigation of yeah. him and there's a fascination with the possibility of getting caught. Yeah. And like that, all that stuff with Wayne is so is so electric. Yeah, there's that moment at I think it's the end of episode five when they first or episode six when they first show up in Atlanta. And yeah, the press so five's comes Manson, up, six they go to Atlanta, and yeah. then the press shows up and they're running around and you have you have Wayne. That's the, our first introduction to Wayne is in that moment. Yeah. He, he steps out of a car with with his camera, and then <laughs> the moment on the bridge really is like I got it an absolute chill, the camera drawing in yes. on him. Um, I was fascinated with, you know, the first interrogation in the car in the next episode um, when they're asking him, you know, about the, you know, do you know any connection to these kids? He's like, I'm not. And the derision with which he spoke about them and that, and you get that first hint of his real arrogance yeah. and, a, and a, maybe a hint of what the motive might possibly be. That stuff was absolutely electric. Yeah, and then again, it's like, what this show does so well is it looks at behavior. It looks at like someone's life. And then it's like, you know what? If you stand two feet to the left yeah. and like kick the tires a little hard, you can start to bend things towards narratives. Oh, yes. And that's, and that's why, you know, like a majority of the people in the, in the task force that's working on the Atlanta child murders is like, it's the clan. Yeah. It's the South. The people who, who kill black kids in the South are the clan. They've been doing it for years. We should be looking at the Klan. And yep. Holden is just dead set on it cannot be that because that's not what my intuition tells me and what my research tells me. And you just wind up seeing, like, with Wayne, 
it's like when you when you start investigating when you're it's like well yeah like obviously it had to be this guy right like this guy obviously wants to get caught when they go to the studio and talk to the dude who's like cleaning up at the studio yeah. and he's just like yeah he's got a temper yeah and he always would be railing about these kids and stuff and there's obviously like an undercurrent about child prostitution going on in atlanta where the kid holden goes up to the kid and tries to give him money for the arcade right, and, and the kid's like runs away. what do you want for yeah, this right, yeah and he's like, well, what do you mean? What do I want yeah. for it? And then he runs away. It's just like they don't it, it they do so much they do so much show not tell on the show. Oh yeah. And they play around with our ideas about what we expect from a show like this. And even even things like the bad news relay that I've always talked about, like with like in Broadchurch, where like they essentially will dedicate like 15 minutes of an episode just so you can get to the point where someone gets bad news. <laughs> it's like the, in Saving Private Ryan is a better example of like the huge sequence of Saving Private Ryan that is just the mother seeing the car coming up the driveway mm -hmm. to give her the news about her sons. And it's like a building and building and building and it's John Williams music. That never happens in Mindhunter. It's a great point. There's so much uh, of like um, stymieing the forward momentum, you know, all these dead ends, whether it be the plumber, the KKK guy, um, the, the good idea to put the crosses out at the march, hopefully to draw the killer in, gets stymied. The trying to find the killer, identify him at the concert with Frank Sinatra yeah. and, and, and Sammy Davis Jr. And Sammy Davis Jr. doesn't work. All these different things. And then finally, okay, the, I guess the bridges, like, and, and the way that kind of just unfolds, like all of a sudden without anybody expecting it to is, is just like so vibrant. And you get a chill when you just hear it. Like, I, I love the way the, the audio cue is like their tension and, and Holden are talking and then it's almost like in the background. I heard a splash. Yeah, you barely hear it, yeah. and then everything just keys in on: is there a car? Like, what do like? Let's pull out and try and get him. And it's just things start happening so quickly, and it's. I, I was just on the edge of my seat. It's like they can't believe that after six weeks or however long right, they've been out there, it. sitting up through the middle of the night, sleeping all day, getting eaten alive by mosquitoes, yeah. and eating fast food, that on the last night, at the last moment, on the last shift this guy drives across the bridge. Yeah. Like he is basically saying like, okay, I don't want you guys to go without knowing it was me. Let's talk about a couple of different things here. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask a little bit about what you felt like. Did you feel like it, the show changed visually a little bit once Franklin takes over in the second half of the season? Oh, for sure. I mean, like, you know, the the march, I think, is the, and the march and, and Holden's race to, to put the cross out, I think is the most obvious example. It just opened up. All of a sudden, we're brighter. So that was a moment where I was like, this is so symbolic, I don't even know what it symbolizes. Right. Because you've got, like, a white guy running through a, a predominantly black vigil right. holding a cross. Shots of him in the foreground, the marchers in the background approaching him, everything in focus. Yeah. yeah, and then there's like all these cutaways where it looks like 8mm or 16mm yeah. grainy handheld footage that almost looks like this Pruder film. I thought maybe we were supposed to consider it as, you know, these murders and these killings are sort of seen as these discrete events and they can be studied and analyzed by places like BSU, but they're actually part of a larger wave of history and, right. and like the civil rights movement and Atlanta's place as this land of like constant change. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you think was like sort of the significance of changing the film stock at that moment though? Yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. I think it's just, you know, the idea of here is the moment where this investigation bursts into the 
public view, yeah. the public of and Atlanta. And that people would have been filming they, him. Maybe. Yeah, they would have seen it. They would have seen this man running through the streets with a cross right. and been like, what, what is this? Who right. is this person? So this kind of like interconnection where, you know, the shadows come into the light, all these kind of like cutting edge ideas about behavior and and where that meets with traditional police investigation, where that meets with civil rights and local politics and all that stuff in that moment meeting in the broad daylight in one moment. Yeah, and then there's the idea that, I mean, because you're already dealing with Brian having put that kid on the cross to bring him back to life yeah. in Tench's life. The idea that maybe like Holden's running around with this cross, but like there's, the kids are gone. Like right. there's no, there's no one even to bring back. There's no resurrection to happen because there's this absence of a, a closing chapter to their stories in a lot of ways. How devastating was that moment when they're assembling the crosses ahead of the march and- They get them in the boxes. Yeah. They got them in the boxes and one's on the ground and Tench is just staring at it. Yeah. And this pall comes over his face like, oh man. Let's talk a little bit about Tench and Wendy's lives because Holden's largely taken out of it. Holden and his relationship to Debbie was kind of the personal element of the first season. Right. And then- Aside from his brief uh, flirtation with Tanya at the Omni Hotel, extremely brief <laughs> in, in Atlanta, yeah. he doesn't really have like a personal life per yeah. se. And I think that you know, Allison's commented on Allison Herman commented a little bit about like I don't think that he's supposed to have a personal life. Right. Like he doesn't really seem to be a well-rounded person. But Wendy's got this relationship with Kay that has some mirror. It has some. It mirrors Holden's relationship with Debbie to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, and then Tench obviously is dealing with the evil at home and also the inability to sort of sustain an active like political side of his work life where he's right. like negotiating for like more power at BSU right. and getting BSU more funds, but then also like being at home. And then when he is at home, he obviously seems just catatonic. Yeah. Um, I thought it was part of what makes it so heartbreaking is, you know, Tench too late realizing how dire his marriage and home life is becoming, um, starts making an effort, taking Brian out to, to ice cream. Yeah. Um, Trying know, to tell him stories about going fishing and stuff like that. That moment in the backyard where he's uh, showing him how to, how to cook hamburgers yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, Wendy has a look of satisfaction, like, oh, this is what it should be always about, you know, on her face. And then the phone rings and he's got to go again. Um, I think, you know, this is a theme that, I, you know, Fincher really seems to like, which is uber-competent, driven people who throw everything into a pursuit at the cost of everything personal and dear to yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was, it's really affecting, man. When Tench comes home, first when he calls home and there's no answer, you know. Yeah. And then when he gets home and it's just empty, you know, I can't remember if that's the Marianne Faithful song playing or yeah. if that is Peter Gabriel that's playing when he comes home and you're just like, oh no. And you know, there there were rumblings, you know, Nancy had said we should move previously, and then there was that moment before that where she was like, you know, we should just get rid of this couch. Yeah. And she leaves the couch for him. Yeah. Yeah, because she's like, This was the couch that we had when we moved here. Um, Wendy's relationship to Kay, which ends kind of with Wendy, you know, she overhears Kay talking about how oh, the person who's upstairs isn't that important. It's not that important that my son meet him. And she's trying to tell her ex-husband, like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's yeah. just a fling. We don't have to introduce the kid to him, to her. Uh, 
And then Wendy's kind of like, you can't lecture me about being honest because yeah. Wendy's obviously gone back into the closet when right. she moves to, Qu to Quantico from Boston. I thought, like, you know, deciding who the public self is versus the private self was was really what Wendy's story was because right. that's the conversation she's having also with Henley in Texas and with um, with the killer in, in New York City when they go and talk to him about all the murders and the gay bars that they that he was he was uh, possibly a part of. Yeah, Wendy um, Bateson, I think was the name. Yeah, of the guy. Paul Bateson, who by the way is in The Exorcist, the real guy. Seriously? Yeah. He he. Okay. The scene where Reagan, uh, she's has first started to have the incidents, and they take her to the doctor, and then the radiologist like does yeah. the thing on her. That is the real Paul Bateson. Get out of here. Yeah. He was in The Exorcist. <laughs> in The Exorcist. Holy shit! That's disturbing. Yes. Um. You know, Wendy really has an issue. Agency is like really important to her. And the fact that she's had to go into the closet um, has made agency in the rest of her life, like, really important. Uh, she doesn't want to get reassigned. In her, you know, at, she doesn't want to get reassigned from, from BSU. When she's uh, in her relationship, she'd like the person to move in, but on her weird, like, very vague— Yeah, you can have the guest room. Very vague terms. You're my you know, roommate, like, yeah. Don't— wear the heels because I'm wearing flats. Like, it's all these things yeah. that are like, just let me be in control because I'm not in control of this one aspect. Of my yeah, life. and they ask, I mean, that's the same thing that happens to her in BSU is yeah. she's starting to become like a burgeoning in interrogator yeah. and a field officer. And Gunn is like, just stay in the basement, yeah. write curriculum, analyze right. transcripts, come up with, uh, like, come up with these these profiles, I don't want you out in the field talking to Henley. Right. And we don't even know is that retribution for her not going home with the guy who was offering to fund the right. BSU from, from D.C. So uh, I'll be really curious to see where they take these characters personally. Oh, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the future of Mindhunter. I, I'm going to go out on a limb, although I don't know, and say that they'll probably keep making the show for as long as David <laughs> Fincher wants to make yeah. it. It's definitely... I think it's one of the most interesting television shows on right it's now. It's extremely I, interesting. They've talked about how Fincher had a five-year plan for it. Uh, currently, Fincher's making a movie called Mank, which is about the screenwriter of Citizen Kane. He's mm. making, I, I believe, for Netflix. He's shooting it in black and white. I think his father wow. wrote the script. Holy shit. But, you know, one would assume that they would get back to work on Mindhunter. There was a two-year gap, I guess, between season one and season two. Mm -hmm. Um where do you think this goes? I mean, we've speculated about the other serial killers it could right. investigate, but where do you think it goes sort of thematically from here in 1980? Well, you know, there's a bunch of serial killers who were active at the time. I can't stop thinking about just what an interesting show this is from the sense of it's not like a normal procedural where there's closure and they close the case and everybody feels good. BTK, as we've noted before, doesn't get caught till like 2005. Right. That's, you know, two and a half decades from where we are right now in the story. So that payoff is a long way off. Yes. And you're talking about Green River Killer active during this time, uh, you know, Dahmer, uh, Golden State Killer. I think, and, and that's the kind of thing that really leads me to the idea that this is like less a show, it, it's less a procedural in that sense and more like a la Zodiac, a show about violence, obsession, and 
and ritual and how that affects people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they can do that for as long as, as you said, as long as Fincher uh, wants to do it. Where do you think they can? I, well, it, it's hard for me to believe that they've dedicated, even though he's only in the beginning and ends of episodes, it's hard for me to believe that they've dedicated this much time to BTK without a right. larger plan towards Correct. addressing his case head on. Yeah. Now, on one hand, you could say that those interstitials are... Uh, supposed to illustrate the actual acts and the begin, like the sort of preamble to those acts right. that they're investigating on the show. Um, I also think it's supposed to suggest the impossibility of ever actually like ever actually stopping these people, right? Because out there in like the uh, not the wilds of Kansas, but just for the sake of conversation, like the wilderness, yeah, it's just like you just don't know what people are doing. Yeah, you just I, don't know whether the guy in the van at the end of the street is a guy taking a nap and eating a sandwich or something much more sinister. I mean, statistically, these kind of crimes are really rare, but they, you know, are pretty persistent in the fact that they do happen and they do exist. I was reading an article, like, recently about how right now is the low, the, the lowest incidence of serial murders in, like, America since they've started studying it, which either means, great, these people aren't around, or... What's taking they're, its place. They're, yeah. Or they're very good at what they're doing. Right. Now. So, you know, it's just a, <laughs> it is a very eerie subject to think about. Yeah. And then there's a practical concerns like how long do you have the. So, Tension and Ford are based on real people, mm -hmm. but I think that they're taking liberties with these characters' personal lives and with their movements. Do you, could you feasibly have these guys working at, as hard as they are, I guess, in 19. You know, the, it's hard to imagine the Tench character in 2005 right. still being alive, frankly. Right. Um, or at least being an active FBI agent. It, you know, what's fascinating to think is like, uh, say the show goes into the 90s, like what, are, what do our BSU agents think of uh, Silence of the Lambs when it yeah. comes out? You're like, <laughs> yeah. what is, the, yeah. you know, like yeah. what are, what is their reaction to that? Yeah, the, the popularization right. of the thing that they sort of discovered yeah. is fascinating to think of. It's also like, it's obviously like an expensive show to make. I, I mean, in terms of, uh, it looks expensive to make. The, the attention to detail, like we talked about before, is immersive but not showy. Yeah. So you're in the Omni Hotel and you get to see this indoor mall that's in the hotel itself, but... It's not like Stranger Things where they're like, oh, and we're in the mall. Yeah. Let's go to the frozen yogurt place. It's like, no, there's an arcade. The arcade is one of the truly the only safe places for Atlanta's kids mm -hmm. to go after school that isn't like being on the streets. So they come into the arcade and they just kill time until it's time to go home. The construction of those, the recreation of that environment is just breathtaking. So yeah, Mindhunter, man, uh, I think it's one of the best things that's come out this year. It's definitely going to haunt me for a long time. It's haunted, and it definitely absolutely like haunted. it really stands up to repeat viewing. So I would just say that if you're if you've watched it or if you've if you're watching one but are just listening to this and thinking about it, like it is like a great film. You can go back to it over mm -hmm. and over again and study different shots. Was there any other stuff you want to talk about with Mindhunter? Um, just a how smart the, you know, those scenes where Tench is regaling uh, people with- Oh, yeah, uh, the FBI uh, stuff. You know, with uh, the stories of BSU, what Manson is like, what Kemper is like. Um, the way he's able to use that as currency in his various um, um, conversations with the, with the child services yeah. people. And it gives you this idea, you know, it's, it's really a commentary on 
how fascinated we are by this stuff. Yeah, like, and he's we, the salesman. Yeah, we don't. These these are horrifying crimes committed by like horrifying nightmare people, and yet like we want to know about it. What are those people like? What was it like to sit next to them? Like what you know? Like and it's a it's a real commentary on like why we watch this show. Yeah, because I think and and one of the fascinating conversations that comes out of the Atlanta child murders is the whether or not like this killer is separated from some sort of ideology right and whether or not this guy is an extension of the racist attitudes of the south at times or whether or not he is a black predator preying like like hunting black kids and you know now we live in a time that's like hyper ideology yeah is is informing a lot of crime in terms of our interpretation of it and obviously in terms of the motivations behind it. So it, it hardly, like, am I looking at, like, the 80s with, like, this, like, t- time of, like, with through rose-colored glasses? Right. But they are different eras when you yeah. think about our relationship to crime. And also, like, I think the ability people had to be, like, that can't happen here. Right. I mean, you know, I was talking with a, a, a old coracle of ours, Rembert Brown, and he was like, I remember... Like, I wasn't really allowed to, like, go outside for periods of time growing wow. up in Atlanta because of this. And I'm sure you and I both oh, have yeah. stories in Philly and in New York about times where we weren't allowed to do the normal everyday kid shit where you go outside and ride your bike all day and right. don't check in. Like, yeah. that's that's the thing that, like, I always think about with True Detective is just, like, you would leave your house at 10 a.m. and come back at 7. Right. And, like, that was just—you were off the grid. You would l- just— off the grid. So you, this, might, you might get to a payphone and call, but probably not. And they might be home when you did. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just like that that idea of being unreachable and that you're just kind of like going along on this social contract that your yeah. child can go outside and be safe, that you could go out into the world and just kind of go about your day. And then you see a scene, and this is probably the most chilling scene in the entire show to me. It's the fucking scene of the BTK guy making Xerox copies of his drawings and poetry. Yeah. And you're just like, dude, like, who hasn't been in the library next to a weird guy, you know? And that, that is that is like the freakiest part about it. And it's the, it's the thing that this show gets so well is, is yeah. like how this stuff can breed fear. Yes. Uh, all right. Thanks so much for watching and listening to us talk about Mindhunter this week. Uh, we'll be back next week, obviously, Succession and a bunch of other stuff for Monday's show. <laughs>